The greatest gift you have to radically change your world is the willingness to be wrong about how you've got it. Boom. My guest today on the Reset Podcast is Mike DeSanti, and Mike drops bombs like that the whole way through this talk. He's a fantastically inspired guy that thinks deeply. He looks at the relationship between facts and belief. He looks at the relationships between our masculine and feminine energy. And if you want to talk to someone about resetting your world, Mike's your man. Enjoy the podcast. Pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, Luke. My pleasure. Mate, the, the book was fantastic. It was it how did you go with the process of writing it? Was it was was it what was your aim to try and get readers to get out of it? You know, is is interesting, Luke, is I I I had one of those moments where it really wasn't in my radar to write a book. I had a lot of different endeavors going on. I had I was working quite a bit and and then one night I woke up in the middle of the night and I had the beginning of it actually the acknowledgement to it, it, it was like words like thundering in my head that woke me up at three in the morning. And then uh, I got up, I, I couldn't sleep. I went into my office and I wrote it. And then the next night it happened again. And then the next night it happened again. So three oh, wow. nights in a row. <laughs> I'm not sleeping very well, but I'm writing. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but I'm writing and words are coming to me. So I, after that, after three nights, I, I my wife had asked me, what do you keep getting up in the middle of the night for? And I read her a little bit of it. And she just looked at me. She's like, you got to write a book. And I was like, I'm not writing a book. And then that night, uh, we were going to dinner at my mother's house. And she said, read your mom what you wrote. And I, re- and I read it to her. And my mother was like, you need to write a book. And I was like, nah, I don't know about that. But I had committed to my mother and my wife. Okay, I will. I'll, I'll write a book. And let's see. So I thought... Oh, this will be some divinely inspired book that'll just wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll just write whatever comes. And then the next night, nothing happened. Right. The moment I committed to it, it just like dried up. My mojo's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, I, I said, you know, no, this is going to require that I sit down and give it the proper attention that it needs. And every morning I woke up and every day I would write at least a thousand words, a thousand right. words, a thousand words. And about halfway through, I've, I said, you know, there's something here. And uh, my aim was really for, as, as really a guidebook for men on how to live a, a fulfilling life and a life of meaning and purpose. Because in my, you know, private coaching practice, I've, was attracting a lot of successful men, but they weren't fulfilled. There's and an amazing amount of misery that can happen with people that get everything that they want. They achieve all totally, their goals. Totally. And they realize the top of the mountain wasn't quite where they wanted to be. And... And, and I was seeing so much of that. And I, and I saw it wasn't of any fault of their own because really they were encouraged and, and taught to go after success and achievement. And I started to notice, I said, you know, no one's ever been taught what's the groundwork and what's the framework of fulfillment. And I, and I had all these men coming to me saying, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, but I'm, I'm still not fulfilled because they assume that once they were successful in that endeavor or that achievement, that it would just spill over and they would be happy and fulfilled. And they noticed like, this isn't working. Yeah, and short of so call, I, 
wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage, and he called, he called it putting happiness on the other side of the cognitive horizon. And I really liked that concept that if I achieve it, then I'll be happy. And it just it doesn't, doesn't work. work. It doesn't work. It's really like a carrot on a stick. Yeah. And you just end up chasing it and chasing it and chasing it. And so my aim with the book was, okay, how do I create a guide uh, for men that are, they, they want to grow, they want to develop, they want freedom, they want fulfillment, they just have never been taught it, or at least given a framework of it. And so that, to me, was uh, the guiding factor and the aim of, of getting the book out. Yeah, there's one line in the book that, there's a hundred lines in the book that really stick with me, but the one that really sticks with me is you say, and I'm probably paraphrasing here, you can say it properly, but the greatest gift you have to change your world is your willingness to be wrong about how you've got it. Yeah, 1,000%. How how did you come up with that? And that is like the greatest Mine, I reckon I've ever heard in a book. It's fantastic. Congratulations. One, uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, one of, uh, you know, one of the, the workshops that I do down here is a transformational workshop called Gratitude Training. And it's, it's a lineage of transformational work. But one of the things that human beings get so hung up on, almost unconsciously or reflexively, is this need to be right. And we have killed each other in history We've my, my god's better than your god that sort of thing bang you're dead yeah i mean we we do it all the time and we have this reflex uh, we call it a survival strategy that to be right but people don't understand is being right so what uh, so i'm right who cares but my willingness to be wrong about my perceptions or my perspectives or even my worldview, the, my willingness to let it be challenged or stretched or try on a new perspective, in that willingness, there's opportunity and possibility. The moment I'm committed to being right about the way that I've got it, I've actually closed off possibility. I've closed off opportunity. And the only people, an opportunity that I'm going to attract or be around are the people that agree with me. Well, so what? We don't grow that way. Yeah. Maybe it's refreshing to be around people that share your worldview, but growth comes in trying on new possibilities, trying on new angles, new avenues, new perspectives. And so the tool to transform my life is my willingness to be wrong about the way that I've got it. Because human beings will do the same thing over and over and over again just to be right even though they're not getting the results that they want yeah okay i guess that's because one of the things i want to get across with reset is that every now and then you've got to stop you've got to you've got to throw everything out a little bit and start again and that's where some of the joys have and often when you're balls deep in those resets it's it feels terrible and it's uncomfortable and it's awful but that's where you get the growth and that's where you get the change from that's where the growth is. That's yeah. where the growth is. It's ta- the ability to, to, to pause and, and, and really distinguish and discern is what I'm doing working and be willing to be wrong. And here's the thing. Here's the barometer. Check your results. Right. Your results aren't lying. We say this all the time too is a lot of the trainers and myself, we say rocks are hard. 
water is wet, results don't lie. Yeah. We'll show you what, what your operating system is. Okay. So if, you, if you're willing to pause and reset and discern between is what I'm doing working and I'm willing to try out something new. I guess one of, the has, one of the hassles that we have is that our default almost always comes down to money. We don't actually sit and think, well, what are our values and what are our measures on you know, whether we're achieving them or not? And money becomes a default one. And it's probably not a very good one because you achieve a significant amount of money and you, you're really not any happier than we were before. Right. So that I would call, I would distinguish as a motivator. And, and unfortunately that becomes a huge motivator for people. Now, what I would distinguish for, let's say a personal client, I'd say, great. Well, what are you associating money with? What's your association that you have money? And many people say freedom or power or value. Okay, great. Make that the motivator. Yeah, Make okay. the money a byproduct of it. So how do you equate or what do you associate with that mechanism of money? You want to make that state or that experience the motivator, not just simply money itself. Yeah. You want money to be a byproduct or prosperity to be a byproduct of your freedom, not the substitute for it. Yeah. That's that, but what we've been taught, that, uh, that other paradigm. Yeah, Get we the have. money and then you'll be free. Get the money, then you'll have self-value and love. Get the money and then you'll have power. No, it's actually other side of the horizon. Around. It's the other but way around. The, one of the stories I, I love from your book is the, is the way you had to change your identity when you're in high school. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, if you could probably set the scene for everyone of you know, what your identity was and then what happened in high school and the next year after that is just yeah. a cracking story. Uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting. You know, I never thought at this moment, you know, being um, I just turned 40 last month, but I never thought that that would at high school or being I was a freshman in high school. I never thought it would be such a paramount you know, moment in my life. <laughs> but I, I grew up, my whole identity was an athlete. I was, my brothers and I were naturally gifted athletes. And uh, so baseball and basketball were really my identity. That's how I was known. Um, and I was recruited to, my brother and I were recruited to play basketball at a, a prep school, you know, early in high school. And I was at that school and I, uh, I tore all the ligaments in my ankle and I couldn't walk. I was bedridden. And at 14, my, my life just became an absolute pause. I was, I couldn't, and my identity as an athlete was rocked. I mean, stripped. And I, I didn't really know like who, who am I without sports or as not an athlete. And I was, Amazed to even think that deeply about your I, identity, I, you know, as a fourteen-year-old. I, I know. I think back on it. And I, my mother has always told me, like, "You're a weird-ass kid thinking weird. stuff like that at fourteen. <laughs> you don't even know the, the weird-ass kid that I was." But I was always like self-reflective and introspective. And I remember, I remember actually asking myself, "Well, is that really what I want to do? Do I want sports? And is that?" the route I want to go down, but I started to read and I started to read like really deep um, philosophical books. I started reading the Tao Te Ching. I started getting into Native American philosophy, Buddhism, and I was a 14 year old kid. 
But I found once my ankle started to heal up, I found that what I, because I couldn't go back to playing sports right away, but I couldn't walk and get outside. I loved being in nature. So when I was 14, we lived on maybe an acre and a half or two acres of land. And I built a lean-to, like a little debris hut yurt in, my, in the woods in my backyard. And I lived outside for a year, a freshman year of high school, reading like inspired by like Emerson and Thoreau's Walden. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I was 14. And I, Your parents I, let you do I, this. My, my parents had just split up. They had just gotten a divorce. So my father was living, you know, 30 minutes away. And my mother at that time, I think, was so overwhelmed. She was like, as long as you don't get hurt and you come back every morning, just do what you want. But I think my mother realized like how much solace I was getting out of. I would go out at night. I would make a fire. I would read. I'd fall asleep. I'd In the morning, my my black lab dog would come out, wake me up. I'd roll up my sleeping bag, head in, have breakfast, take a shower, go to high school. And I did that for a year. I I gained so much like insight from doing that. I'm I'm from Australia and we we live in Queensland. We're at nighttime. It's like, you know, 20 degrees or 70 degrees, your your stuff. You're in New Jersey. You're waking up with snow on your tent. Right. Yeah, not even a tent. This is just a a man-made debris hut. And I remember, think of this. I remember, uh, this was the story that I remember most about it, is my aunts were visiting from Florida for a Christmas. Now, it's Christmas, December. And my aunts came up to stay with my mother, and, and they said, and my mother said, you could take Michael's room. And she said, no, I don't want to take his bed. I'll sleep on the couch. And my mother, without batting an eye, said, oh, don't worry. He doesn't sleep in his bed. He <laughs> and my aunt was like, it's 20 degrees out. It's December. What do you mean he sleeps outside? Uh, 20 degrees like, is about minus yeah. 10 for Australia. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. So my mother, and my mother was like, oh, don't worry about him. You'll just see him in the morning. You're not he's that frozen popsicle of a kid i've got sitting in a sleeping bag outside (laughs) exactly coming in christmas morning shaking off the snow yeah that's a pretty cool story though like you're you're reading inspirational texts and sitting out in the sun in a fire and i guess is that part of where the the your fascination with montana and native americans and all of that sort of stuff comes from that is where i think it got very cultivated and very um, it really started to become a big part of my life. And then through high school, uh, I remember, you know, growing up in New Jersey, I, I just wanted to be in the Rocky Mountains and outside. And I, and I just wanted to see like really spectacular settings. And I remember um, I was another thing that I, I can't believe my parents let me do, but I was a junior in high school and my friends were seniors and or in college. And me and three buddies took a train from New York City to San Francisco and uh, around the country for 30 days in the middle of the summer. Wow. And we hiked the Sierra Nevadas and we took it all over the country. And uh, one morning I woke up in Glacier Park, Montana, and I saw this most magnificent sunrise. And I remember thinking, I, I need to live here. I need to be around here. So. After 30 days, I took the train back home to New Jersey, and I, uh, I said, I'm in love with Montana. There's a college out there. I'm going to apply to it. And I never saw the college. 
I didn't even know where it was. I just knew I need to be around this. And I filled out one application for college. I got accepted two weeks later, never saw the college. I said, that's where I'm going. Bought a pickup truck and drove across the country and landed in Montana and lived there for four years. It's amazing that you didn't like, I think if that had happened to now, the way people parent and stuff now, the the helicopter parenting and all of that stuff. I don't even think think that's possible nowadays. I have a 17-year-old daughter and there is no way two years ago I would have let her catch a train across from New York to San Francisco. No, not a shot in hell. No. Yeah. I, and, my, and people now ask me all the time, well, what did your parents say? I said, but they were cool with it. And you but came out around? Right? Yeah, it came out okay. Yeah, but it, it okay. is that, that sort of that risk aversion and that need to constantly be comfortable that we have now that I think we need to change. We need to sort of sort of let go. And if you fall over and break your leg, well, that, you have to wear plaster for a little while. It's you not the be- end of the world. Yeah. I think we've made it the end of the world. Like the fear of failure is worse than the failure itself. Yeah, I've found it heaps of stuff. And every single time, it's nowhere near as bad as what you think it is. No, the anticipation of pain is worse than the pain yeah, itself. it is. At least emotionally. It is. This podcast is brought to you by Calm Stress Support. Calm Stress Support is a product on a mission to help you find your calm and live life better. Six powerful herbs combine in effective therapeutic dosages designed to reduce the symptoms of stress and mild anxiety, soothe the nerves, calm the mind and support general mental well-being. This revolutionary formula is all about assisting you in finding balance again. With the revolutionary Blue Ness and Recover Bin in the blend, this functional supplement will support your physical and mental energy, recovery and cognitive function, while increasing your ability to cope with daily stress. Calm Stress Support is the new lifestyle supplement by Body Science, formulated to be the new daily staple in your health and wellness routine that you just can't go without. There's a couple of really cool stories you tell in the um in the book one of them's about the lion and the fox from Sadhguru. oh yeah uh, do you remember that story sure yeah. sure yeah. um if, uh, we won't tell the whole actually we could tell the whole story now would you can you give us the short version of it now the, the short version of it I, I i love this story I, as a matter of fact the the person who uh introduced me to this story was actually my wife my girlfriend at the time my wife now uh but there's a uh there's a monk, really, or, or a, an, a, an aesthetic, who uh, goes out into the forest to meditate, and he uh, he goes out into the forest to meditate. And he first he gets scared by the sounds that are out there, and and gets you know a little frightened. In the original story, he actually leaves, and and then he says, "No, I got to go back." And he ends up going back and meditating in the in the wilderness. And he comes across a three-legged fox or an injured fox. And every night he sees that this fox in the, in the wild, like the fox is easy prey. But every night the fox seems okay, well-fed, safe. He wonders, how is this There's a three-legged fox that's surviving here in the wild? And then one night, he sees that a generous 
lion that he's afraid of comes and every night brings food to the fox and feeds the fox. And he has this epiphany that says, oh, I'm just going to fast and starve myself and just be sit here and wait. And God will provide to me like the injured fox. He has this epiphany. He goes to his guru and says, guru, I had this great epiphany. I, God will take care of me. Life will take care of me, just like the injured fox. The guru says, it's a fascinating insight. But my question is, is why would you choose to be the injured fox rather than the generous lion? Yeah, it's a cracking way of thinking, isn't it? I love it. I have always loved it. As soon as my wife introduced me to the story, I said, what an incredible perspective. So many of us, because of scarcity and... Yeah, I'm entitlement. Entitlement. I'm entitled to be the injured fox. I can sit here and do nothing and someone will look after me. Absolutely. And, it and probably comes, comes from that nanny state we were talking about before. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's no way even, you live in your, in your even, backyard in the middle of winter <laughs> and um, right. you know, travel across the state to 16 and, and be the injured fox. You kind of have to sure. be the lion. And, and the, the, the interesting part of that is how rarely people think there's another perspective. I could simply just be the generous lion. I didn't even see that perspective. And that I think is a fascinating, fascinating insight to say like, okay, again, going back to, I'm willing to be wrong. Maybe yeah. there's some, maybe there's another perspective. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? The, uh, the generous lion is just as available to me as the injured fox. Yeah, for sure. One of the other, other thing that you guys do is you do a lot of work on gratitude. You do gratitude camps. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the, the training team, can you take me through some of that and what some of the things you do in those and, and some of the sort of resets and transformations that you're getting from people in these gratitude camps? That, that is a, uh, it's a four day training or a four day workshop that I, uh, coach. Now there's also the, the second part is a five day workshop. And the third part is a three month leadership program. And the first part is really gaining the awareness of the narratives and stories and the survival uh, strategies that we operate from that we're totally unconscious to. Things like being drawn and thrown to being right or being in control or staying safe and comfortable and familiar or looking good, getting people's approval. So many of us unconsciously are operating out of those survival contexts that we don't realize that they're getting in the way of what we desire, our results, a fulfilling life, happiness. We don't realize unconsciously these old patterns and conditionings are getting in our way. That's the first four days of it. And then we do another part uh, of breaking through it. So it's kind of and deconstructing not, what you're thinking now and then and just, up and throwing gratitude in there and stuff. Just wiping the whole slate clean and then rebuilding and rebooting your, really your conditioning, your context uh, consciously. Then the three-month portion of it is practicing it right. day in, day out in your life. It's life-changing and life-transforming. And the, these, this work, this style of work, I should say, has been around since the late 60s, early 70s, and it's evolved as our culture has evolved. And now uh, there's 
centers of it all over uh, all over the world, really. But there's a, a handful of centers in America, and one of them happens to be you know here in in Florida, and I'm one of the trainers as as well as my brother and uh, to to that work, and it's been it has been life transforming not only for me but for my family, friends, and uh, the people that I've coached. I mean, it's just groundbreaking. But I guess you go through all of those stages of change. Those sort of you know they're hanging on to what they what they knew before. They hang on for a while, and then they let go of a little bit of it, and then they let go of it more, and then they embrace whatever. And yeah. it's, it would be a real process, I would imagine. And some people would would push against it a lot harder than others. Oh, without a doubt, <laughs> without a doubt, because we, we get so used to and familiar with our conditioning. And, I, and one of the things that we were talking about, you know, you know, being willing to be wrong, but also the need to be right, uh, the need to be in control or, or stay safe or in my comfort zone. Over time, human beings will do what's familiar rather than what's healthy because when we do what's familiar we we get a sense of certainty from it but familiar does not mean healthy comfortable does not mean healthy i i say this all the time to my students like have you ever noticed how uncomfortable your comfort zone is it's brutal it's so brutal because we miss out on so much by staying in our comfort zone but we stay in our comfort zone because it's familiar, not because it's healthy. And it's easy. It's a path of less resistance too, isn't it? You sort of stay there. Yeah. It's It's familiar. Yeah. One of the other, and I'm I'm saying this a lot, it's it's annoying, but one of the other things about your book that I really loved was your, the way you changed, you talked about the difference between beliefs and facts and superstitions and Mm. your story about black cats. Can you, can you take everyone through beliefs and black cats and, Absolutely. So a, a lot of the work that we do in the workshops and the programs in the, in the gratitude training is, is, is distinguish. And most people are living lives where they're, dis, they're, they're not distinguishing. They're just collapsing everything and blending everything together. And they're living as though their belief systems are facts. And they're not. Facts are facts. Beliefs are beliefs. <laughs> interpretations are interpretations they're distinct but we live as though our beliefs are facts and i make a parallel in the book is that beliefs are more like superstitions they're not facts they're superstitions Mm -hmm. and the example is if i uh, believe that black cats are bad luck and that if i see one something terrible is going to happen to me i will build an entire life around avoiding black cats. I will naturally do that because I'm living as though black cats or bad luck is a truth. I'm living as though it's a fact. But the moment I say black cats or bad luck is a superstition, well, now if I see a black cat, maybe it's bad luck, maybe it's not. Yeah, there's a bit of flexibility there, isn't there? There's a bit of room to change. There's flexibility and I'm willing to be wrong about my interpretation of black cats. Yeah, I got that. The reason that hit home for me so much is having written a book about stress and the whole idea of the book about stress is that stress is good for you. You need some of it, fire you up and get you going and all of that sort of stuff. 
is I think we've had the superstition that stress is bad for you, so we need to avoid it exactly. So like we avoid it exactly. If 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 black cats are bad luck, and I'm walking down the street and I see a black cat, I am going to cross the street. I am going to go out of my way, and I'm going to build an entire life to avoid it. And so if, if I have a stress, it's the same. If I have a belief stress is bad, I'm going to design a life of radical comfort and do my absolute best to avoid stress at any cost. But here's the thing. Without stress, there's no growth. Without discomfort, there's no adjustment. Without uh, challenge, there's no adaptation. And without uh, adversity, there's no resilience. So... I, with that, if I, and that's from one belief. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's We've only got from one belief. There's got, you've got ton, years and years and years of unconscious belief systems and unconscious conditioning. I actually, after I read that, I actually wrote a big list of things and that I think are true and then put them which ones were beliefs and which ones were superstitions. And geez, there was a lot of them that weren't really true. <laughs> The sun was coming up from the east and there was a couple of other ones, but most of them were like, yeah, okay, that's just how I'm interpreting this. Based on my perspectives, based on my perception, based on my belief systems, based on my old experiences and my conditioning, my points of view, all of it. Mm. And we don't, we don't question it. We don't challenge it. And we don't distinguish it. But here's the thing is the moment you distinguish, wait, those aren't facts. Those are belief systems the moment you distinguish them now you have freedom you have power yeah one of the one of the facts or beliefs that you really do challenge is sort of almost the the definition of what it is to be a man and the relationship between men and women and um some the way you described it was was women were like the ocean and men were like the mountains well i say masculinity and femininity okay so, so it's it's more energetic rather than gender but yeah, so I distinguish it that way. Is that masculinity is is more of a and no matter what the gender, we all contain both. It's really like the yin and the yang, or mm-hmm. yin and yang, however you yeah. want to say it. It's really it's that dance, that masculine and feminine, creation, destruction, life, death, the counterbalancing of energy. And there's a the the way I distinguish masculinity is mountain unmovable committed standing strong you know the weather comes and goes but the mountain is unaffected committed disciplined consistent femininity is more like the ocean deep forever changing inspiring one day a lake the next day a tsunami inconsistent but there's the beauty of that inconsistency is if life is too masculine and too rigid then we get forceful and brittle and bored and if life is too feminine then life gets too chaotic ever-changing no consistency so the balance of the two is having that excuse me having that counterbalance in that dance between when do i get to be steadfast committed persistent move forward unmoving unwavering and when do i get to be creative flow surrender be inspired and there's a dance. There's a dance in this life. And if, if, if I just pick one and go with it, then life becomes too extreme. Rather than how do I marry the two together? How do I uh, harmonize them together? Because that is where I feel is where we are most powerful. Life requires creativity and commitment, inspiration yeah. and persistence. 
it requires all of it. It does indeed. Mate, it's been fantastic talking to you again. Um, anyone want, wants to get hold of your book, you can get it on Amazon and, and, and any other places. Uh, and you can always uh, uh, follow me on my website or, or reach out to me on my, contact me on my website. Jump on uh, his Instagram if you want to see great photos of Montana. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. spectacular. But, my, uh, website is, my website's newmanemerging.com or michaeldesanti.com. You can always shoot me a note there or you can uh, buy the book there or, or just drop a line. Um, and then, yeah, my Instagram is Mike underscore DeSanti. And yes, I typically will post pictures of uh, mountains and adventures and travels. And I'll put all of them in the show notes. But, but awesome. Mike DeSanti, as always, it's been great talking to you. And uh, thanks for coming on the Reset Podcast. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Luke. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.